0: The daughter of a Swiss mother and Pakistani father, Sabrina Jalise is a Canadian by birth who became famous in her native land by starring or hosting in several TV and radio shows north of the border. After immigrating to the U.S., Jalise found herself starting over and coming out. Since 2015, though, she has found success here, too, performing on Comedy Central's The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, Adam Devine's House Party, Amazon's Transparent, and Netflix's The Comedy Lineup. She also has written for sitcoms on NBC, ABC, and TBS, and is on the current writing staff for the Netflix animated hit Big Mouth. Jalise began the 2019 development season with a script deal for her own sitcom on Fox, ended it with a co-starring role on the CBS sitcom Carol's Second Act, which premieres this fall starring Patricia Heaton. There's a lot to get to,
1: so let's get to it!
0: It's been too long since we've sat down together.
1: It's been 150 years. I've it been counting. Been.
0: But I can still remember seeing you fresh off of customs from Canada.
1: Oh yeah? New you York. were there waiting for me? I was.
0: <laughs> I feel like I saw you when you first got to New York.
1: Yeah, probably. That was about 11 years ago? 12 years ago? Did I say about, about like I was Canadian? Yeah. I think that when people talk about Canada, it comes back into me. I have no control about whether... about. About, about. I I can't tell the difference. Mm.
0: When you when you came to New York City, you were fairly established in Canada, right? You'd yeah, television I was, and you had credits, and uh huh. People loved you and adored you.
1: Yeah, I was like, if I can do this in Canada, imagine how big things could get in New York. And it was fully like started from the bottom. Now I'm here. Now I'm back to the bottom. <laughs> it was just like, yeah, no one cares about your dad's accent. No one cares about these stories that like. It, the truth is when I started doing stand up in Toronto, I was in high school and then I was in college and mm-hmm. stand up was never, uh, it was a full time job because I just got so fortunate um, with getting these gigs in Canada and then starting to work in TV. But it was, was never my Toron- full time. Always in Toronto? Or? Always in, based in Toronto. Yeah. yeah, I grew up born and raised there. Did you do um, Second City stuff or no? I did actually. I was the youngest person ever hired on the tourco at Second oh. City. I broke. I broke uh, Mike Myers. Record. I was going to say, take that, Mike Myers. I mean, he's livid. Still won't talk to me. Still has not contacted me. Um, you should go on the Gong Show and make amends. Don't think that I haven't thought about it. <laughs> so wait. So how how
0: young were you? If, I was seventeen. Record? Okay.
1: Um, I was 17, and then I kind of had to decide between stand-up and Torco slash Second City decided mm-hmm. for me because I was, like, you know, booking stand-up gigs and being like, so I'll take that day off and that day off. And they're like, bitch, take all the days off. <laughs> you kind of need to be obsessed with, uh, with one of those, one mm-hmm. of the things. And uh, I just, what I loved, I mean, there was so much to love about stand-up, but I really liked being, you know, having the mic and it just being me versus with improv, which when I moved to New York, I started doing UCB and stuff like that, because I really love improv. But um, you really need to be uh, you know, part of a team and really invested in all those relationships.
0: Now, we said that you had to go down to the bottom and start.
1: Yeah, dude. Again. What a shock. Did, I-
0: did other Canadian comedians prepare you for that or
1: no you know i there's this thing where i started really young i started when i was 16 and i really just i had had this really fortunate rise Uh, it was really it was right right after 9 11 no i just it was moving to new york was my first like you know life is real Mm -hmm. like you've got to you've got to start from the ground up not to say that i think that what what was part of my fortune when I started was I'm half Pakistani and half Swiss. And like talking about my ethnicity and talking about my, uh, my family's relationship with Islam and, and all of that was so timely because I started in 2002, January of 2002, which was right after nine 11. And there was this sort of like Islamophobia, um, there, there was just so much to address and not a lot of people in that space were you addressing also, it. Were you already out? I was not out. I didn't, wasn't even out to myself. I had no idea. At that time oh. I was still like having fantasies about Jennifer Love Hewitt and like feeling her breasts against my body mm. but in my mind Her so, body is a wonderland. Her body was a true wonderland and just dreaming of that wonderland but mm. classifying it in my mind of like it would be such a great friendship <laughs> like not at all thinking that I was gay. Oh. That to me was... Just so crazy. So you
0: you thought just the Pakistani I'm good at school. How Paki- could I be gay? You just thought the Pakistani and Pakistani and Swiss was enough of a hook.
1: Um, yeah. Well, that was kind of what you I didn't was. did on realize you more then. of your story to tell. No. Exactly. Yeah. And I was kind of it, being be my racial identity was my first queerness to deal with. Mm-hmm. I think there was definitely a time when I was younger that I really wanted to blend in. Um, like my legal name is spelled with two E's. Sabrina and I, I remember changing no, it. two e's, and that's, <laughs> Jalees, that's that Sabrina was like the brilliant thing that my no, 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 no. There's no E's, but in my but my legal name is with two e's. But mm-hmm. consciously being like when I when my mom signed me up for school, I think in sixth grade when I was going to middle school, mm-hmm. um, being like I don't want the two e's because people know that I'm different. I want a, I want an I, and that's kind of just what stu- like that stuck all the way down to like I bought a URL, and now here I am like. At this point in my life, realizing everything that makes me different is actually the thing that has, like, boosted me. Mm-hmm. Sorry for burping yeah. green curry all over this well, mic. I mean, it's, it's, Who's you know, the what? next guest?
0: It, in a way, it's Sabrina's second act.
1: That's right. <laughs> well,
0: yeah. Um, or is it th- or is, would you call this your second act or your third act?
1: I mean, how many... How do you divide the you acts? Have the cana-
0: you have the Canadian... The Canadian act life, was one act. And then New York. And then you come out to Hollywood...
1: Four New York ago. was another act. Yeah, this is, I guess, the third to act. To do, like, writing? You came to, out to be I, a writer? I, yeah, I got a staff writing job um on a show called Crowded, which was a multicam that shot off the Universal lot. Uh, it was on NBC, mm-hmm. which was such a great first job. A, because I think multicam, the relationship to stand-up is, like, so connected, You know, although the deeper I get into writing for TV, the more I'm like, oh, it's all the same. It's all storytelling. And like the stories that I care about are stories that people really feel connected, that are grounded, that are like coming from a a place of passion and vulnerability. And then you can layer all the jokes onto it. But anyway,
0: the other... Multicam has the live audience. Multicam has, yeah. So the jokes have to land.
1: Yeah. And there's something about being there with the audience, seeing something play out and then feeling all of that energy while you're pitching that is that is uh pops pops me out of the uh bottle and makes me a genie how did I get it I wrote um I wrote a spec script well okay so here is actually I'd I'd been wanting to since I started doing stand-up I I always I always visualized that I would you know I I really liked that in Canada I could write write and perform on TV Mm -hmm. and I was always like I want to write a show for myself but it seems so daunting, um, and final draft is expensive, and it just seems like there's a lot of you know there's a lot of uh, hurdles. Uh, but I did Adam Devine's house party, and uh, one of the executive producers uh, is Scotty Landis, and he was so sweet. And after my set, he was like, you know, you could really build a pilot off of that set that you did. I was talking about, you know, my relationship with my in-laws and stuff. And we talked, we just walked around New Orleans and talked about it till like four in the morning. And he was like, you know, if you want to do this, you could just send me, send me a, you know, your drafts along the way and I'll let you know. Kind of how you're doing and guide you, and he did, and so, um, yeah, he's kind of like my I don't know what do you call that mentor? A, yeah, mentor, and just like he really like you know breathed life into this dream and made mm-hmm. me feel like, oh, I can do this, so is that um, the script that you? Submitted to get the exactly so then so then a lot of things were happening first of all so I when I moved to New York Mm -hmm. I really thought it was going to be like overnight if not overnight over the course of a year I would have like great representation I'd be doing all of these American things that Mm -hmm. I dreamed about Um, and it took much longer and that was kind of and at that time too was when I was realizing I was going to have to be more honest like I I wasn't really out I wasn't comfortable talking about being gay on stage I I found it even harder to come out on stage than it was to come out to my parents Um, and especially because like the beginning of my career had this sort of race you know I was like literally like I'd say half of my income was like performing at like South Asian uh, benefits and galas and places where it just felt like starting to build material Mm -hmm that was about being gay would be shutting down my business or something. And I didn't really at that time have a lot of examples of it going well for people. I really, in my mind was like, Ellen came out and then her show was canceled. Just like, and she still talked about that in her
0: special that came out in 2018, 20 years later.
1: Yeah. I mean, imagine how that was.
0: So it still (laughs) had such an effect on her. Well, it's a huge, and psychologically that 20 years later she wanted to address it in a standup special.
1: Yeah, I, I can, I mean, I can totally understand. I mean, it yeah. still, it, it affected the shape of, what happened to her affected the shape of my career. And by the way, I'm sure, like, I don't know, I, I didn't really watch the show. I, I've heard from people like, it wasn't that great, anyway, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is, when there is just one thing that symbolizes being able to be yourself and having success, and then that sort of, the timing of that be, being canceled when she came out, it's just so, it really has such huge, trickle effect which is why it's like so incredible now to be like sitting here we're we're recording this podcast from uh from the big mouth like a, a little editing bay in the in the big mouth uh offices titmouse animation at titmouse studios. titmouse animation studios um and You know the the themes that that show explores, and then you know Patty Harrison being in that room, who's like young and trans and fun and hilarious and like thriving, and and Gabe Liebman writes on the show. Just like seeing all of these, just just how different the landscape of comedy is. Right. from you know 10 20 years ago You're to all now the it's cute yeah well it's well just that that, they're thr- that people but now that, that now here we are in a space where people realize that everything that makes you different and makes you uh, you know not normal is actually what gives texture and layers and 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 all of the good stuff that you want in storytelling
0: what was the first moment that you started to feel hope in that regard?
1: Um, that's a good question. I think that when I started becoming comfortable um, to talk about being gay on stage in a way that wasn't like an apology, that wasn't like, so I'm gay and that's something that we've got to get out of the way, which was mm-hmm. the beginning. Like when I started, I'd been on the road doing colleges and I was like not coming out and then realizing like, oh, there's like kids at this school that I could be making a difference by being the only gay person that's talking about it. And I was, I think also as I was falling in love with my wife, Shauna, we met 10 years ago. And I think being kind of emboldened by that relationship and just feeling like there's nothing about this relationship that is embarrassing. You know, like I'm in love with this gorgeous woman that makes me feel amazing and... I want to be able to share that. So that kind of colliding with being in in a space where I felt more comfortable. Also, you know what, that colliding with being outside of Toronto where I had hosted a kids' show um, in Canada and just like it's all stuff that you put on yourself. But in my mind, I was like, I can't be gay and host a kid's show. You know, it would be so controversial. Well, you know, just the way you, you create hurdles in your mind, uh, because it's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's like really feels in the beginning when you're coming out, like you're jumping off a cliff and you really like, you spend a lot of time looking over the cliff and exaggerating the reactions. Um, but anyway, I think as I started becoming more comfortable, um, with the anonymity of being in the U S where no one really it didn't matter what, you know, no one had a preconceived idea of who I was. Didn't
0: think of you as a kid show host.
1: And then, yeah. And then, and then falling in love with my wife and then just being so tired of, of not being honest on stage. Cause I knew that my honesty when it came to race and stuff like that was what helped me. I'd learned that lesson, but it just, I needed to like relearn it when it came to being open about. Yeah. That part of my identity, and so I think I think starting to write jokes about you know my wife and meeting her parents and all of that um, honesty really galvanized is that a good word mm-hmm. it really like that that was when I started to feel hope around that
0: but when you came to Hollywood, the thought was to be a writer, not to be
1: the thought was just to come here, make some money. Uh, write on a show, have that experience, and then go back to New York. Because I really love New York. But as soon as I started writing on on Crowded, which, yeah, as soon as I started writing on that show, I started realizing this was like a whole new world. That I really, you know, I became obsessed with it in a way, in the same way when I started doing stand-up. You know, like, it was like, wow, this is like, I can really scale it up. I can start with an idea that I talk about on stage, but I can build a whole story around it. And then you write it, and they got to build sets, and then actors <laughs> just have to say the lines. It was like you know, th- super thrilling. And um, the weather's not bad, and I could really just see us, you know, living our lives with the top down, um, top down of the car. Did you? What, and was it difficult to convince your wife to stay? Um, the original game. Well, so she hadn't it. moved yet, and oh, it, I think okay, it took.
0: So you had to break
1: it to her. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're going over... Well, I moved her. I, we're I, going moved her. Baby. I met her in San Francisco. Okay. And there, she was California. living there. Okay. Yeah. So and bad. we kind of. I mean, it wasn't like out of our sight that that. L.A. would be a place that we would go to. Mm-hmm. I think things had just been picking up for her in New York. She's a, a wardrobe stylist, and she'd been like really excelling in like the fashion world there. So it was a sacrifice for her. And when she first moved here, she was going back and forth to New York a lot um, to style shoots and stuff. But now things of um, you know, baby, baby is out of out of body. Yeah. Baby is one years old, and uh, Shauna's kind of flying over here, and it's really beautiful to see.
0: So you you took a number of writing jobs, right? I
1: did, yeah. I so then it was yeah just about including getting experience, including now. this one now. Yeah, ones. I I wrote on a a few different network shows, Powerless on NBC and The Mayor on ABC. I'll hold for applause, <laughs> and then um, I I wrote on Search Party, mm-hmm. um, and that was really incredible because then that was like another sort of layer where. Almost like writing for network was like learning how to play the clubs, and and writing on a show like Search Party, which I was a huge fan of before I started writing on it, um, was like oh so you, you know, went for season one? No, okay. I I uh, season three was where I started, and okay. it was like you know that was like doing a cool like underground show with like. Chelsea Peretti and, like, Sarah Silver, just people that, like, you know, that, that became, like, this whole other layer of, like, oh, yeah, we can also make TV that's, like, super cool.
0: And right. Because the knock against network from comedians often is it's too broad. It's too Well,
1: it's just it's different.
0: there's also there's, there's network uh, sensibilities that you have to deal with.
1: Yeah, because at the end of the day, if your show doesn't play for five million, even if if your show plays and four million people sit down to watch it, it's a failure. You know, like, so how many, you can't really take the same mm-hmm. risks, but that's, but, but there's also something amazing. Like and I've always,
0: doesn't have those constraints.
1: No, but I've also, also just with stand up been super interested in being able to play broad, but then in also being able to do small rooms. I think there's like, you know, it's just, it's a different, it's a completely different game. The appeal for the broad for me is like, this idea that I I really did not have you know we we really like talked about that Ellen moment but like there was nothing like that so you know for me the the really touching part now is I'm going to be acting on this CBS sitcom and my character is gay and it's not the point it's not like the thrust of the show by any means but I think You're that's not the
0: sassy gay best friend with the-
1: no it's just like I that it's it's weaved. It, it's woven, it's weaved in into woven. my uh, into my character, mm-hmm. um, and and that's exciting to me. That that's you know that, that things are despite like the macro political social world sometimes seeming so dark. It's also like really cool that that's happening. You know right, <laughs>
0: that I can be gay on that I can television.
1: be gay on network and and not that people haven't. I know like Will and Grace is iconic, and mm-hmm. it's but just that. That someone like me was like who they saw, and they're like, "Yeah, she's got to play this part." I think it's that's like such a wild, cool thing. And I mean, the idea of so many people watching it is makes my nipples <laughs> hard and pointed in opposite directions.
0: <laughs> now, what was the first year that you decided to go out for pilot season as an actor?
1: Oh, well, I did this thing a that writer, I, but as- before I had any representation, mm-hmm. I. Real, I had like a commercial agent in New York. I invented that I was going to come to LA for pilot season, but I had nobody, like literally no, re- like zero, zero reasons um, other than just not being in the snow for January. And I had zero, zero auditions. Oh. I came for pilot season mm-hmm. just to watch the planes fly. <laughs> like I literally, but I think I was also testing out LA and, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard. I mean, it's so, this business is so funny and vague until it's not, and then you realize like all the times that it was vague, you were just preparing for the moment. When I did get agents, like the idea that I had a script ready was so huge. It, sh- it changed the shape of everything. Because um, I finally did get good agents at, at WME, and it was almost like months after they signed me, I, um, I, was staffed and really I think a pivotal moment in my career too was meeting Sam Safer. Um, she had been managing broad city at the time and I was at just for laughs and she, I just like was looking at her being like, I want, like there's these moments in my life where, and I think everybody, you know, you feel it where you're, you see something and you want it and you know that it it's, vital mm-hmm. but it's also like so important for you not to be desperate like that's the <laughs> such a like fine balance of being tenacious and, and not you desperate and thing
0: that you want without yeah. being too obvious and i felt about that way
1: yeah, when I saw Shauna dancing, mm-hmm. I, I like felt that way. When I saw Sam, like the way she was managing just that whole operation, it just relapsed, and just like the kind of manager she was, the kind of person she was, I was like, yes. When I met our donor, who was my surf instructor, before I asked him f- to be our donor, I just felt this like moment of, like, this is an important person. Be cool. <laughs> be cool, Jalice.
0: Now, do you have to tell yourself the same advice, to be cool in those different situations? Because... Ask, asking someone to manage you is different from asking someone to be your baby daddy.
1: Well, the stakes are high for both, and then right. at the same time, like different... the thing that you have to remember, I think, is like to be cool. The thing you have to remember is like if this is destiny, if this is meant to be, mm-hmm. um, then it's it's gonna end up being right. It's the it's like not and you've got. I mean, like that's just. It's like the stakes are only high if it, this is successful anyway, right? Because mm-hmm. if she was like, you know, I went, to, I, I said, I want to have lunch with you. And I went, we went to this Vietnamese spot and we were drinking pho and I was just, and I had, and I had broken up my, with my manager at the time the mm-hmm. night before. Cause I was like, I'm doing this proper. Um, and. You're not going to
0: cheat on your manager with another manager. No,
1: I was very <laughs> dignified. And. <laughs> You know, if her answer was like, no, nah, I'm not that into it, then obviously she wasn't going to be the best manager for no. me, you know? Sure. And similarly for when I asked our donor, it's like, well, then that wasn't going to, ha- that's not happening. <laughs> um, but, but you went two for two. I went three for three by then. Oh, right. because Two also. for two at Sam and then three for three at, at uh, Ricky. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but was, had you done pilot season with auditions before this season?
1: Yeah, I mean, like, because this I had, season
0: is so fascinating to me because yeah, of tell how me. it started and how it ended
1: with this. For you. Oh yeah, totally. I, isn't had, that wild? Well, like,
0: so had you done? Had you auditioned for? I had, for part, I had, had you actually close to anything before. Yeah,
1: I had tested for a part before mm-hmm. on on an ABC show. Okay. Um, is it still on the air? No, it's it never went. Okay. Because uh, they didn't cast me. No. That's these networks got to learn their lessons. (laughs) Um, so yeah, the the beginning of this pilot season was, it was my first time selling a script and I sold a script to Fox that was kind of like a, an iteration of that original spec that I wrote. It was kind of like everybody loves Raymond, but based on my wife and I's relationship and my in-laws kind of moving in too close. And, uh, and, and everyone at fox was really excited and i really liked the execs that i was working with there but it didn't end up shooting and at that at that point in the pilot season i was i felt i had been i was always like look the networks are pirates you can't be on this ship and think that you're not going to walk the plank at some point mm-hmm. they're out for the gold and i just i i was disappointed obviously cuz you write a thing and you know as much as your life and it's about yeah it's very personal it's not Um, just
0: some workplace sitcom
1: yeah um so it felt sort of that that felt kind of like a bummer but then um a couple writers that i wrote on the mayor with had Mm -hmm. written a pilot for cbs called carol second act that went that was being shot and And they asked me to come audition, and I was actually in the big mouth room, and so I had to ask for, you know, half a day off Mm -hmm. to go audition, and I was like, don't worry, I think it would just be like half a day, I'll be right back. And, and then I immediately, like, they, they called and said, you're gonna test for this thing. And so then, then my agents were so wild because I had gotten this, um, the script that I sold to Fox, it was through a Warner Brothers deal, like Warner Brothers. Um, I really liked working with them on powerless and they liked me. So they had given me like a blind script deal. Okay. Um, I don't even know if I'm supposed to tell you all the details of what <laughs> happened, but I was like just addicted in my mind to like thinking of like walking out, just visualizing walking out on the stage on like a tape night because that was my first my first writing gig was a multicam and just being in that position where you get to like run out to applause and and like you know play with the lines and do alts on stage and you know Patricia Heaton being this big like icon right. kind of like. We woven into th- that last show that I'd sold with Diablo Cody um, anyways, so did wh- you ask
0: Diablo for advice on what what to do or
1: um at that point no, and what ended up happening was they got um. Yeah, I got a deal with CBS to, like, write a script as well as act on the show if I was to get cast on the show. So when I got cast on the show, it was, like, this double win where it's, like, I'm going to be able to, like, create another show and also act on a thing. And it it just, you know, like, the power of no or the power of just believing in your worth. I, you know, as a Canadian that was paying $5 to do five minutes, you know, at midnight... When I first moved here, it was just wild, the idea of like being like, we're not doing it unless there's a development piece, too, because she's a writer, and then it coming true was, just, I mean, crazy.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. And then you have the taping of the pilot, so you get to have that walkout
1: moment. Oh, my God. It was so cool. But everything like to do with a pilot is just so... Um, fragile and um because everything's tentative yeah because like nothing's it's like a fake it's like you're about to have amazing sex with this new person that you're like you know you have that moment where you're like this could be someone for me um and then like you do and and it's like great orgasms Mm -hmm. but then you're like you've got to like play it safe with your heart and be like yeah, I mean, like they might call me and they might not, and like I don't care either way. Like right. either way, it's fine because like nothing really matters. Right, because the network might ghost you. Yeah, maybe yeah. The <laughs> network might, make might a ghost great you. Pilot, and
0: then you never. Yeah, I'm trying to complete the. the...
1: Then they're ghosting. then they're going off to war, oh. <laughs> and there's a lot of bullets. That's the way. Oh, I thought you were going with the
0: Game of Thrones. They go. <laughs>
1: I don't watch Game of Thrones, and based on everyone's review of the last episode, I'm so happy. <laughs> For a while there, months ago, Sean and I were like, Do we have to watch this fucking thing? Well, there's a And character. then now people are like, The finale sucks, mm-hmm. so uh, I was right all along. Well, there's
0: two characters who have sex in the final season, and then the guy immediately takes off the next day to go to war.
1: Sean, I, I tell you this all the time, but Game of Thrones is constantly stealing my shit. <laughs> I say it and they do it. But you know,
0: those are those are the feelings that most people go through making a pilot. But when you're making a pilot for CBS with Patricia Heaton, is there less fragility no, to it? Because not at all. Because like, the pressure on, on that to CBS. be good is okay.
1: is high. So and for me, like this was my biggest acting opportunity. Um like, Pam Fryman, who's iconic and, like, directed episodes of Friends and, like, all of the How I Met Your Mothers, she um, had to keep <laughs> reminding me, like, not on tape night, but as we were kind of getting into our roles, mm-hmm. she's like, okay, Sabrina, you're doing great with your lines, but, like, you have to remember after you say them, you're still acting. Because I would, like, say my lines be like, cool, landed that one with celery with peanut butter at crafting? <laughs> like... I, you know, it was just, like, such a... I felt like a lot of the times, like, I'd just been, like, called down from The prices red Right and got to, like, be Bob Barker or something. It felt really wild. Like, the this whole thing has felt like, you know, a, a sequence of lotteries.
0: What was... How did it go down that you found out that it got picked up?
1: Um, actually, they don't call... They, they, like, release the information out wild. For, so I got a bunch of... I was in the room at Big Mouth, and I kept mm-hmm. getting messages from people being like, congratulations. And, and then I got a message from someone saying, congratulations, fool. And then he wrote back and was like, JK, I'm the fool. And in my mind, I was like, oh my God, it got picked up. But then he looked at the article and I've been cut or something. Oh. And not that I've ever been insecure a day of my life. Mm-hmm. Not that I've ever thought low of myself at all, but it's, it's such a vulnerable thing. Like acting is just having been on the other side of things and, and, you know, like after a table read, I'm used to like sticking around and hearing about what the network has to say and then talking to the showrunner and figuring out, you know, how to puzzle things together to make, you know, like how to be a part of that that part of the solution. It was so hard to do a table read or do a run through or do the tape night and not be in tune with what, like, the network is saying, what the studio is saying, what the showrunner wants.
0: You're just saying, you're just fun. like,
1: you're just, you, you know, you wipe off your makeup and that's it. You're done. <laughs> or you stretch out your makeup for a couple days and let these people uh, appreciate how soft this butch is getting.
0: So you, so you just find out that you got this crazy big gig. Yes. Just from your phone blowing up.
1: From my phone blowing up, and then my manager was in the air; she was flying home, and then she called, and then my agents called, and then yeah, then it was the you know brigade of congratulations, which is always a good day.
0: Now, for someone who hasn't done upfronts before, what is
1: that process? Oh my God! Well, let me just start by saying, you will fly first class. Mm -hmm. You will be not in not in the business big wide reclining seat. You will be in. A fucking pod, okay? (laughs) A happy little peanut pod. But before you will be there, you will check into a part of the airport that you never knew was there or possible. It's like a little boutique hotel lobby check-in. And then a man named Frank will take your carry-on and roll it to security and you'll be like, I have to pee Frank and he'll be like, No problem. And then he'll like let you into this part of the airport that just like all of these like rich people parts of the airport you didn't know existed. It's like beyond lounges, there was like another pee-pee place for my rich little pee pees <laughs> to fall. And then and then he like helped me like get all my things together through the security, uh, lifted me through security, J JK, JK, JK Jake. Uh, Everything aside from lifting me through security, Frank did. Mm -hmm. Toss Frank some coins, and then you're off to the lounge, baby. (laughs) And I've only been – I've been to lounges, and there's snacks and stuff, but this lounge – oh, my God. It was, like, the best, most amazing buffet, Um, like, mussels and shrimp and there was a guy like making custom polenta. Then there was like top shelf unlimited. It was just, it and this felt is at, the airport. at the airport. Yeah. It's like peak capital, mm-hmm. like the capital and hunger games, but like 1% of the capital okay. is who's there. And then you just be cool. You act real chill. Mm-hmm. Then you,
0: were you on the same flight as the rest of the cast? Or was I wasn't.
1: No, it was okay. a different flight. I think that I, I took a red eye cause I wanted to do the day mm-hmm. here, um, before flying out. And, uh, and then in the air, they made me a custom, I mean, I had lamb chops, but then, but really the thing that was really <laughs> incredible, custom Sunday. I told them what I wanted on the Sunday. Mm-hmm. They provided strawberry, hot fudge, wow. mixed nuts, whipped cream, and Haagen-Dazs ice cream. It was just incredible. I did not want to leave. The plane <laughs> landed, and I was like, I think I could just stay here. Casper brand name pillows mm-hmm. and uh, duvet, like a duvet type blanket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to live in that land. Oh, on the way back also, next to me, Gabrielle Union. Okay. A couple ahead of me, mm-hmm. Jessica Alba.
0: That's that's the crowd you're, you're. That's my crowd. That's your crowd
1: now. <laughs> um, and then the upfronts themselves. I just right. realized like how big of a star Patricia Heaton was. It was like we got this amazing time slot Thursday at nine thirty, and like it just all felt. This thing that I had been kind of like in my mind, being like, you know, it doesn't really matter. Like either way, like who cares? It doesn't. I was able to like sink in and really fall in love with because it's at least you know for the next year and potentially one hundred and fifty years. Um, tonight's podcast is sponsored by the number 150 (laughs) 150 years um it just i I was able to sink in and really enjoy this like new reality and walk out at carnegie hall so okay so what happens at upfronts Mm -hmm. is you get there and then like agents take you out for a big dinner and then you have like the upfront day so for cbs it was wednesday and the morning starts with like getting your makeup done at carnegie hall realizing that your like suit pants are hemmed so that like the bottom of your ankles are showing and you have like crazy gorilla uh legs but it's like not a political statement it's just like you didn't do the right thing Mm -hmm. so then the makeup lady gives you a shaving Mm. utensil and then you' do that in the sink at Carnegie Hall, and then you realize this would look good on Instagram, so then you like parade it around and get them to take pictures of that. Then you cut yourself uh, <laughs> exactly where your sneakers meet your the back of your mm. heel um, so that 's fun, mm. and then uh, but you don 't feel it because you 're about to be so uh, just what 's it called basking in attention Endorphin. just oh. basking in full throttle attention yeah. um, just standing next to Patty uh, while people ask her questions and then like tagging her answers with like you know me too you know just like getting in there <laughs> entertainment tonight extra Hollywood duty everybody <laughs> asks you about what the show is Patty yeah. tells the premise of the show, and then you do a little fart, and then you move on to the next. And then from there, then it's Carnegie Hall, and it's all the advertisers that spend the most money um, uh, uh, at the network, and they're sitting in the audience, and you get to run They play the clip of the show, which was the first time that I got to see the show. And then you run out, and then... um, Yeah. And then people clap for you. And it's like every, you know, like these are like it it was like a montage of like a fantasy day, the day that I like started doing stand up, like what I thought, you know, the dream would be. It was like that in a day. And yeah. So then from there, it's like photo shoots and then uh, dinner.
0: And now there's a miniature break before. And now there's a mini
1: break and you just walk around and you're like, so no one wants a photo with me. Cool. (laughs) Real cool. (laughs) I mean, it makes me understand why, you know, like famous people do drugs and stuff. It's like, it's, it's like a, well, just that it's like a high, it's a real or, or not do drugs that, that there's like, you know, that people that reach those heights even, or like athletes that it's like hard to come down from it.
0: Well, that's what everybody says about stand-up comedy, too. Though, isn't
1: that it? too? Yeah, is yeah.
0: That once you have the adulation of hundreds, nay thousands of people, and then you just go back to the hotel room, what's? How what do you feel to, again? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. How
0: do you feel feelings?
1: Um, yeah.
0: How are so? How are you approaching this
1: time in your life? It's well, it's like so much abundance ever since uh, my son was born. Really, is what it feels like. My son Wolfie was born. Uh, January of two thousand and eighteen and like since then it 's been re- like really like a lot of things have opened up, and right. I kind of just feel like he is this like f- he 's this force and he 's in my life now and uh, and and now you can provide I can buy for some him. new vans you can for him too. <laughs> yeah a hundred percent i uh, I feel so so grateful so so grateful and um you know these dreams that i had like kind of from the beginning i've had this like dream that i could like have a production company you know and like and like lift voices that i liked and i feel like if you know if this i think that i'm on target i think that that's you know that's where this right. You're could on
0: a network show and your deal includes
1: creating a show creating yeah a
0: show.
1: yeah And I think this time it's going to be around my coming out because I can't be in the show because I'll be on Carol's second act. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, like a young Pakistani gay girl, Sheldon?
0: (laughs) Sold! (laughs) (laughs) Or a spinoff about your character from Carol's second act when she was coming out as a kid. Well, there we go. (laughs) So, you know... We were joking at the very beginning about having to like, be a star in Canada and then start from the bottom, and then you're here, and then you have to start from the bottom again, and then you're here. We
1: finally answered that age old question. How long does it take for Canadian famous to book something uh, huge in America? And it is 12 years. Uh, somewhere between Did you say 11. Eight? I think around 11 okay, years. 11 years. Yeah. Okay. So if you're listening in Canada. They fly by, though. Those eleven years.
0: Well, the exchange rate.
1: Yeah, with the American exchange years is. Well, actually, yeah, eleven American years is fifteen Canadian years. Um, but blinking, blinking, they're over.
0: Well, Sabrina, I'm so glad I got the chance to sit down with you uh, while you're still entertaining interviews.
1: I'm so glad you got to have a donut for lunch. <laughs> I don't think we addressed that on the podcast. But no. Sean had a glazed donut for lunch, and I think that's. A hero of a meal.
0: We're all living our best lives.
1: It's L.A., baby. <laughs>
0: yeah. Thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. Last Things <laughs> First. This episode of The Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brezel at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave. Logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news, become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean L. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.